Darmstadt on air number 26. Hungry Listening. Peter Meanwell and Dylan Robinson in conversation. Hi, the Darmstadt Summer Course 2023 has just started and we are happy to present a new edition of Darmstadt on Air within the festival. My name is Silvia Freidank and I'm part of the Darmstadt Summer Course team. In episode number 26, Peter Meanwell, together with Kate Mollison, he's one of the tutors of our seminar Words on Music, he interviewed the Holmach artist, curator and writer Dylan Robinson about his book Hungry Listening, Resonant Theory for Indigenous Sound Studies. The book was published by University of Minnesota Press in 2020 and uh, Hungry Listening presents an exoriating critique of colonial assimilation practices in the classical art music world. Simultaneously, it is celebrating indigenous methodologies and artworks, proposing a new way of writing, sound and listening through doing. Hungry Listening has been a key text for Peter Meanwell as he collaborates with Sami artist Elina Wagemikalsen, exploring indigenous Sami experimental sound and music at Borealis, a festival for experimental music in Bergen, Norway. Enjoy listening. Hello and welcome to another episode of Darmstadt On Air. My name is Peter Meanwell and uh, I'm Artist Director of Borealis, a festival for experimental music in Bergen, Norway, a country that has colonised and continues to occupy the lands of the indigenous Sami people in the north. Um, I'm sat here at home in Bergen on the west coast in the south of Norway, overlooking the forest, and I'm delighted to be in conversation with someone who I find huge inspiring, uh, the Holmach Stalo artist, curator and writer Dylan Robinson. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation and very good pronunciation on Holmach. <laughs> I've been practicing. Uh, where are you talking to us from, Dylan? Uh, I'm coming to you today from the lands of my downriver relatives, Holmachquim uh, people, um, often referred to as Masquim, in, um, as you would pronounce it in English. Uh, and I say downriver relatives because where I come from on my mother's side of the family is Stalo lands, or we call Solstamach, uh, which is about an hour and a half to two hours drive upriver from Chmachquim. And so we identify as Stalo as well as Cholmach because to Stalo or the river is what unites our communities. So we are downriver here. I say my downriver relatives, and and we are we are just upriver from from this place. So from 2015 to 2022, you were the Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Arts at Queen's University, and I think today you're holding the position of Associate Professor in the School of Music at British Columbia University. Um, And it was out of this period at Queen's that you wrote your book, Hungry Listening, uh, or at least it appeared. <laughs> I guess it was an enormous amount of work published by the University of Minnesota Press. Uh, I think it came out in 2020. And this is a book that I've been returning to repeatedly over the last years, not least because it presents both a, a kind of excoriating critique of colonial assimilation practices in the classical art music world where I'm working, but also celebrates the uh, indigenous methodologies and artworks and those people creating them, and proposes through doing a new way of writing, sound and listening. So it has these many sides to it in a way. 
But I thought maybe by way of introduction to the book, uh, the title is Hungry Listening, uh, which is a translation of two, two different words. I wonder, could you explain to us what that is and, and how these words come together? Sure. So um, about 10 years ago now, I'm trying to do the math quickly in my head, I began to learn the language that our people speak, Halkamalam. Um, I did not grow up speaking the language, neither did my mother. Uh, my grandmother likely knew some a little bit, but there are several generations, which is fairly common, actually, because of the Indian residential schools um, that that prevented us from uh, maintaining our languages, from, from speaking, from speaking any of our language, many indigenous peoples, all indigenous peoples across the country now known as Canada were disconnected from uh, our, our languages. And so I'm one of many, many Indigenous folks who have returned to language recently. And uh, I, be I begin this way because I want to also say that as a language learner, it's really important. It's been increasingly important for me to center language in all of my work, my thinking and writing and daily life teaching teaching uh, new words to my daughters as a as a way of language learning and maintenance uh, but also thinking through the concepts the values and uh, you know the the beauty that we have in a connection to the way we understand life and the world through our language so this coincided with you know, a part of part of the writing of the book, and I, I really wanted to center, find ways to center how I understood the act of listening, um, and the act of, hmm, I think, listening in the broadest sense of the term, through through uh, you know th through the ways that we take notice of what is around us, and listening being one aspect of that. But but the word that we use for listening, which is hualalam also means witnessing, or I should say we also use it to, <laughs> to talk about the English concept of witnessing. And this is important because hualalam is the practice of giving attention that we, um, that we exercise or use within the longhouse when we tell our histories, when we do uh, various kinds of business and important work that takes place inside that, uh, you know, ceremonial space of the longhouse, um, and this comes into play in our community when we ask formally for someone to be an honored witness. So in this moment, we ask someone to document everything that is going on within the space. But, I, but we, don't also, we don't ask for this documentation to, to just be the, the facts, the information of what happens. We also ask for this to be a documentation that speaks to the feel, the affect, the, um, you know, the, who our relationship, what our relationship is to the person who's speaking, to our family who is present. So it's a very, and also a very multi-sensory um, kind of documentation of what, what's going on in the space. It's a very holistic approach to um, taking notice of what is going on around us in whatever whatever business is transpiring there in the longhouse so it's a it's a very it's a very honored request or position to be this um you know to be asked to be an honorary witness it also requires a lot of practice to be able to synthesize and and then hold and then recount 
what's ha- what's happening so we have there's you know there's training to do this work so there's this is the really formal side of hualalam of of listening and witnessing that we exercise but this also overlaps with daily practice too it doesn't just we don't just stop listening in this sensory way in the in the world outside the longhouse we also apply this to everything we do this this kind of sensory engagement with the world so that's one of the one of the starting points for the work in the book to sit, to think through as a stalo person as holmach what listening means for me and the other interesting side of this the hungry part is was for me to consider what uh, settler colonial forms of listening might be and the word that we use for settler or newcomer to our lands is hulitam uh, which it does mean newcomer or settler but it also means starving person and this is because the first major influx of uh, newcomers to our lands was during the gold rush uh, and they were the, these folks that arrived were very literally starving, malnourished, but also had gold fever. Were starving for resources. Uh, and there's a an account. Um, a historian has said that uh, or documented that the, this this change of of newcomers' presence to our lands was very significant, from three hundred to thirty thousand folks over the period of a number of months. Not all of whom stayed in our in our lands. Some of whom moved north. But this was there was a very this this I guess I'm, what I'm trying to say is this hunger was, was felt in a very significant way uh, by our people, and so we we began using this word hulitum to describe newcomers. But I think of it more not as just a um, identification, a form of identifying a, a group of people, but as an orientation to the world. World this kind of starving orientation to knowledge acquisition to uh, acquiring resources that is not necessarily about not as that is not based in reciprocity not, not about giving back or thinking about the relationship one has to what is acquired the knowledge that is acquired um, through listening so i began playing with these two sensory orientations hualalam uh, and kualitam or shulitmesh which is the adjective uh, and put them together, you know, to as hungry listening, right? A form of listening that is about acquiring knowledge, um, appropriating things without uh, thinking about one's relationship to what knowledge one has acquired or what sounds one is listening to. Because I think it really speaks to the way that many Indigenous folks are in between these two positionalities, uh, you know, it's neither, it's, there's no sort of pure essentialism here <laughs> between an indigenous form of listening and a uh, settler colonial form of listening. We've all, you know, I, I myself have grown up within this orientation towards starving listening that I need to actively, uh, you know, I, I need to think through how to, how to listen otherwise as well. So it's not, I don't, I don't just sort of bracket myself out as someone who has not been affected by this orientation toward the world. Yeah. So that's where the, that's where the title comes from and the, the, where the concepts are, are drawn from. Um, but I also, you know, often like to say when I'm describing this work that it engages centrally with listening positionality. So not just a settler colonial and indigenous positionality, but how we listen from through all the levels of our positionality, through race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, 
Um, how, how are we, how do these aspects of who we are guide what we are able to hear and what we are unable to hear? Um, and, and this is always a question that should be, I think, returned to, you know, we're not just trying to go through a checklist and say, um, I'm, you know, this is, I'm a bad listener in these ways and a good listener in these ways. And that's that, but, uh, how do I, how do I listen to such and such piece of music, um, as a cisgendered man, as a, uh, as Cholitam, as Chormach. Uh, and, and these are challenging questions as well to work through because we don't often think through how our positionality guides how we listen, um, but it really, it does. I mean, the book is in many ways very generous in that it outlines some <clears throat> huge issues, but also gives us tools, I think, to question and, and to think and to reassess our position and how we are in relation to those systemic problems. Um, you talk, I mean, this, this notion of critical listening positionality, it doesn't seem like there's a, I mean, there is no easy way to assess that or to, to kind of improve that. <laughs> it, it's so, I mean, in, I guess in terms of, uh, I think in terms of the kind of intersectional uh, work that many of in the arts world have been trying to do over the last five, 10 years, uh, it's an ongoing job without a without a finish point without an end point i think do you propose solutions in the book as well as problems <laughs> yeah yeah well you know i have been i have been this is probably one of the this is the perennial question that comes up right uh, as it would for me as well if i was reading this not as my own book but uh, or, or it's a quest ongoing question for me right how do i move this theoretical work into action Right. And working within a music school as well, how do I how do I implement this kind of work in the classroom, Um, getting students to think about the ways that they listen, limitations on their listening capacities and also their abilities, you know, the ways that they that they have really unique ways of listening that they might not also recognize. And one of the things that I've been doing more and more frequently pretty much every class that I teach now is focusing just on positionality, just working through naming who we are, uh, you know, what our connection to those aspects of, of, um, privilege and not, you know, are, uh, from race, class, gender, sexuality, narrating those in various ways. I, I really think of this work as a, as creating the thick context, not to sort of you know, because when we th- sometimes when people think about positionality, they think about it as a kind of caveat. You know, they're just going to say, oh, these are my limitations. Now I'm going to move on to my work or now I'm going to move on to the presentation I'm giving. And I think what we really need to be doing is considering how these things implicate what we do. Right. How we how we move through the world, how we how we listen, um, how we uh, engage with other people. And so I think of it as a process of considering and reconsidering all these aspects, naming them in a variety of ways, which do often feel essentialist, because as soon as you name something, you're kind of creating a little box around it, right? And it can feel uncomfortable because you're like, well, that doesn't hold in every situation or that changes. And so positionality is always changing. And that's so important to recognize. It's not a category of identity. It's a set of intersections that we move through in various ways, depending on the folks we're in the room with, the place we're listening from, the what we're doing 
all of these things change. But creating this thick context of naming and renaming is really important, I find, for myself and for students, not so that we can create a checklist of them saying like, oh, I listen to this in this way, I listen to that in this way, but to actually let it become um, a process in and for itself that we can then put have as a hum in the background. I, I like to think about it as a as something that is there, the work that we have done that has been part of a process, but that we are not hyper aware of in the moment of listening. Because as soon as we start bringing it to the foreground in listening, that can actively take us away from listening, right? This is a sort of paradox. So I feel it's really important to focus on a uh, you know, on a process, right? As, as you would in any technique, right? You need to come back to the craft. So really we're thinking through the craft of, of, um, who we are in the world. I don't know a better way to put this, right. But, but the, the, the naming of those things, um, that can then be a sort of exercise, right. An exercise for that purpose, building that sort of capacity or that, that muscle memory, um, that we don't then need to bring to the foreground in listening, but can then serve us in ways when we do listen to things. And maybe we notice that after the fact of listening, right. When we go back to those moments of, um, following a piece from its beginning to end, Oh, why did I notice this thing? And then maybe I noticed that actually, because I'm a little bit more aware now of who I am as of how I work in the world as a father, who knows, right. These things can be very, uh, it was the wonderful thing about listening, right? There, it's an act of improvisation, right? We're doing it in the moment, and we're not we're not sort of pre trying to predetermine how we're going to hear something. Um, so it's, you know, I think, when it works, it's really it's really wonderful, and also to see students become aware of they kind of end up making these connections um, through through this larger process of naming and 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 uh, thinking about their own individual positionalities. It's really moving away from this music as abstract notion, listening as kind of abstraction, really actually about grounding those those activities within our embodied selves, our emotional selves, and like bringing mm-hmm. affects back into the mix. Absolutely, absolutely. It's not the kind of structural listening where we're trying to identify things as we listen to say, oh, right, that is the resolution. That is the, this is a chord progression. Mm-hmm. That is a kind of rhythm, you know, as it is, this is actually something that um, isn't about trying to pre-identify <laughs> the right thing to hear or the wrong thing to hear. Um, not about naming forms necessarily in the moment or, or being able to recognize as a sort of like a recognition kind of listening that we're doing a lot of the time. Um, when we, when we know the framework actually of what we're supposed to be recognizing or, or what we're missing. Right. <laughs> mm, absolutely. Yeah. Right. Kind of, kind of canonical listening, <laughs> kind yeah. of ticking the boxes of, of what you should hear. In the sense that the book also deals with the kind of history of uh, relationships between art, music and uh, indigenous practice, indigenous culture, indigenous words, indigenous song. There's a there's a line in the in in the introduction that really struck me, and I keep coming back to about the about inclusionary music and or inclusionary performance. In the sense that you know, post Truth and Reconciliation Committee in Canada, there was this big move. There's lots of funding of kind of inclusion of indigenous artists in art music programs. Um, and this kind of resonates, it feels a little bit resonating with the kind of decolonial movement that's sweeping Europe and museums and art festivals and things over the last 10 years. Um, 
and you write such inclusionary efforts bolster an intransigent system of presentation guided by an interest in and often fixation upon indigenous content but not indigenous structure and i'm wondering like could you just kind of unpack that a little bit for us in terms of how that might relate to a contemporary classical music festival like darmstadt for example sure uh so even before the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada, which was meant to be an assessment of the uh, the Im- impact of the Indian residential schools, this history of Indigenous children being taken from their families and um, placed in the, in the care of largely church-run residential schools where incredible atrocities happened uh, from abuse of various kinds to separating us from our culture and who we are as a people. Um, you know, so a lot of work has happened in the wake of the truth and reconciliation, which was this multi, uh, was an eight year, five to eight year long process of hearing from indigenous communities and families about what the legacy and impact of this was. Um, there's, there's been a large move since that time to center, uh, to redress you know, the marginalization of Indigenous culture and Indigenous people. And so funding has been put towards supporting Indigenous work, which of course has been good. <laughs> you know, that support is good um, and has made, uh, you know, possible a lot of different kinds of work. But also it has led to a very um, quick uptake of Indigenous content, indigenous programming of various kinds across the arts, you know, where, where institutions are then rewarded for programming indigenous things. So often this results in that work being presented. But of course, what what is almost, you know, always excluded from this is what forms, how that work is programmed, right? It's usually, if it's music, it's still performed in the concert hall. It's still, commissions are still for orchestras um, or still within a ritual, concert music ritual uh, that has nothing to do with the Indigenous uh, culture that may be influencing the, the music itself, right? Everything is still sort of oriented towards this inclusion, um, this limited form of inclusion that puts indigenous song into a Western art music form. And I don't want to say, and this is not a complete dismissal because there's also really good work that happens from this. Uh, you know, a lot of my colleague, indigenous colleagues, composers and performers do this work and, and have beautiful, have created beautiful, interesting, intricate pieces. But the, from an institutional perspective, everything else remains the same. Um, and, and in fact, a lot of this work is oriented towards uh, addressing a non-Indigenous audience. So it's still the same audience. And it is meant that institutions, arts organizations have not had to consider the impact of these foundational questions about what they do um, within the structure within the kinds of change that they're they're making so they may be programming more indigenous content but they might be actually putting that content into still a very conservative or traditional presentational form that may unwittingly actually do some violence to the thing that is being included or or you know in, in a in a 
putting putting it in a different way, you know, just not be honoring <laughs> that work in in the fullest way that might be possible. You know, whether that's a question of is that a violent presentational circumstance or is that just not the fullest and best place for this work? Um, those are those are different questions that need to be addressed on an individual basis. But um, but I myself have, have felt like I I am brought into these scenarios where Indigenous content is placed up front in a and presented in a format that I feel is violent, right? So I use that word based on my own experiences. And of course, we can turn to a much longer discourse of what's called, um, you know, epistemic violence, right? The ways in which when our knowledge is put into forms that are not consistent with how we express that knowledge as indigenous people or other cultures, um, you know, the Western forms of whatever it might be, the white cube of the gallery, the essay as a writing form, um, you know, the, then that structure of argument, support, conclusion, (laughs) all of these forms can end up being violent towards that, which you are trying to yeah, present and give a give a space of um yeah a, a space to actually to 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 exist so i don't know if that exactly answers no, no, your question. it absolutely does yeah i mean just as somebody i mean i found this so powerful i think because as somebody who programs a festival and presents content you know actually this really made me stop and think you know this 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 part of the book is to you know not just, you know, who are we representing in our programming, but how are we fundamentally changing the way we, we work to acknowledge and honour and also learn from those Indigenous methodologies. And, you know, we are, Norway is a country that sits on Indigenous land as as, as Canada is. Um, and so these are really present questions, I think, for us here. Um, but I think in the broader sense, in, in, in the way that the book speaks to a larger kind of uh, intersectional reflection on, around critical listening positionality, I think it's a question that's actually really important to to kind of all of us who are presenting art music, whether we are on Indigenous land or not. Um, you know, when we're, we're looking to decolonize our festival programs or we're looking to, you know, uh, try and remove misogyny from our, our programming yeah. you know like is this just window dressing for for the applications or you know to make ourselves feel better or are we actually creating systemic change within our our ways of presentation our organizations and i think it's also important to say that this doesn't mean all of a sudden the same um, people who are programming then say, oh, okay, well, we should present this in the powwow fairgrounds, right? Or make a, make a sort of decision to suddenly import an indigenous, uh, presentational space or format into their programming. I, what I think it means is requiring a different relationship with whoever, whoever those communities are that you think you are wanting to engage with or who are you're, who you're commissioning or, um, you know, to say, let's talk about this together, right? Because you may, you may be also surprised at the answers that you get where someone says, no, it's absolutely inappropriate (laughs) to do that thing that you thought was going to make a positive change. And in fact, let's, let's try blending these or let's, let's still use the concert hall, but change it in, 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 in these, you know, particular ways. Right. So, so again, it's not about, the importation of, of, of like throwing everything out that was old and bringing in everything that is new and different, but actually a conversation with folks to say, if 
if the parameters were, if, you know, if, if it were up to you, let's have a conversation about how, what might change, what the, what the, you know, potential might be here with the spaces and the resources that we have as a presenting organization and the ideas that you're working with as a composer. How do you extend those to the space of performance? The word relation comes up a lot when I've heard you speak about the work. Um, and I mean, I guess that's what we're talking about in part, but I think, Extending this to the idea that, that sound doesn't live in, in this abstract kind of isolated sense, but it is, it is relational. Listening is relational. It's relational to, to others, to histories, to meaning, to, uh, to a whole host of different elements. I wondered if that you could explain that a little bit to us. This kind of relational, it's a huge question, I'm sorry. It's a big, <laughs> it's a big question. Um, but, but, I, but again, you know, to go back to that, you know, to thinking through positionality, one of the things that we don't often name when we're talking about that is the, you know, is the place or the, the institution that is supporting what we're doing, the concert, the government, the, uh, what are connections to, is this being performed in a church? Is this, and, and we're, we're always in the midst of relations with place, right? Whether we think about that place disappearing as we've often thought the concert hall is supposed to do, you know, make the rest of that place disappear so that we can just listen to the thing, um, or the white cube. Let's erase the, the the place so that we can just focus on the the art, right? Um, and I feel like I, I mean I don't want to speak in generalizations, but when many Indigenous people think about relationship as this as as not trying to segment out all the things to to make to to create a pristine space of focus on the one thing. Right. We are we are we are engaging with what it means to listen to this thing while we are um, in huckleberry picking season. Right. Or while we are doing this work with our grandmothers or our, our communities or our children, you know, it's an active engagement with not segmenting everything out. And I really think about this. Uh, again, in relation to teaching lately, because we have these spaces, I'm sure these, you know, I, I remember these when I was doing even my PhD many years ago at the University of Sussex in England, you know, uh, there these, these, um, you know, flexible teaching spaces, right, that are supposed to be you can have everything technology in many on many different walls and whiteboards and all, all the things at your fingertips. Uh, but one of the things that's almost always not part of these spaces are windows. <laughs> and, and, and again, I think about this is so that we can focus on the teaching and not have to think about the connection to the place, to the land. So there's been this, there's been a very, very significant move in indigenous pedagogy and teaching here in Canada and the United States around land-based education. And a lot of people think about this as, you know, doing that work in our, on our lands, you know, with, with our cultural traditions. And that is part of it. But I also think we can do that within these classrooms as well by saying, oh, well, we're teaching, maybe right now we're, we're learning calculus or whatever it might be. And let's look out the window for a second and think about the relationship of this to the land that we're on, right? Having that connection to the place doesn't just mean, it, it doesn't mean that we're allowing our um, minds to wander. 
right, to daydream and not focus on the thing. Um, and I say this with full realization that 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 you know uh, it can be difficult in a classroom to to gain focus. But I think it doesn't. We we don't need to think about this as an all or nothing scenario where you're focused or not focused. We can have things in relationship again, so that we can consider the thing. And maybe that actually means a different kind of space for different forms of attention, right? So that it's not all or nothing, that we don't expect our students to only have focus on the one formula or the one piece of knowledge that we're sharing, but we actually say to them, okay, we're going to be doing this and now we're going to be relating it to that, (laughs) right? And don't consider that as a separate lesson or as a separate time, but do that in the moment um, so that that attention becomes more relational or peripatetic or whatever term you want to use that means that it oscillates between things rather than is so fixed. I often feel lately that that mutual exclusion is a settler colonial form. I've been saying this more and more frequently, you know, that, that, that this kind of singular kind of attention, and it was often, um, I don't know the right word, but, but demonized, you know, is thought about as a sort of uncivil, uncivilized practice that indigenous folks just couldn't, we couldn't hold our attention together long enough to, to learn, to really learn things, right? This, this sort of uncivilized, uh, you know, inability really is just so present within historical documents. And I also think, well, well, no, actually, we had a kind of, and we still have a relational form of attention that brings things together it yeah it was a big question there was a big answer as well there's a lot lot to unpack in that we won't try and unpack it but uh i mean it just i just feel like there's many things that i mean just you know thinking about how uh i guess the the world of composers or contemporary classical music has moved in the last years as well thinking about you know i guess starting to unpack some of these ideas of normal, you know, around space or around, you know, the erasure of bodies, for example, you know, interchangeable bodies within an orchestra or, you know, so that people's kind of specific bodies are taken into account on stages or, you know, we're considering all those things. It feels like there's, there's a lot that we can learn by thinking, by reading your book, but by thinking, by thinking relationally, actually, and trying to, up, trying to move away from these, these status quo positions. Um, that that assume and create violence against those that we assume, you know, because it, it it always excludes. It's if we think about social models of disability, for example, about what access mm. means and who has access yeah. to all these things. So it yeah. feels like there's a lot to a lot to draw on that. I want to just pull one, hopefully not quite so big question out at the end. But I I was just listening to a a, a conversation with um, uh, Oglala Lakota artist Suzanne Kite recently. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you're talking about uh, about field recording um, and about consent in the notion of field recording, and I think this idea that that maybe not all knowledge is for everyone. Mm. Um, and there's actually a part in your book where you ask non-indigenous readers to to skip a few pages because that section of the book is not for them. And I, I just wondered if you could reflect on, I guess, is it the idea of refusal? Yeah, I mean, so many, many indigenous communities share this relationship to knowledge that there are right places and right times for knowledge to be shared. Um, 
and for various reasons, you know, I don't, this is, this is not always for the same reason, of course. Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't equate to censorship, right? We're not, there's this very different relationship here to knowledge than Western, you know, enlightenment paradigm of all knowledge should be available to all people at all times. Sometimes that knowledge we understand is not, um, not safe to have or that we're not ready to have we're not ready to acquire and you know coming to it later means that we come come to it in a more more rich way um, or more fulsome way but so there's there's that there's that one um, aspect and then also ceremonial knowledge is not meant to be shared um, because of the power associated with with that knowledge quite often but then there's the other side of of what you named as refusal, right? Where we, um, we as indigenous people have had our knowledge taken from us, our families and our, you know, ancestors for a very, very long time and, you know, mischaracterized, kept from us in museums and various institutions. Um, and that, that remains the case when you, when you look at a lot of museums, even though there's work to reconnect, us with our, you know, with our, with our, with what is held of all kinds, songs and and belongings that museums hold, there's still ultimately that is still kept right by the museum and is not integrated within our, within our communities, and so we have we have asserted our rights, you know, more and more frequently. I think to refuse to share our knowledge and belongings sometimes for fear, I think. I and mean, you talk to a lot of community members who feel that that, that knowledge will be taken from us and um, mischaracterized and shared and profited from by others because that's the history, history that we have. Or um, a refusal to say, no, we, we, should, we should be the ones. We should be making, making those decisions about when we share what we share whom we share that with the right time for that to that sharing to take place and that that often is you know what what folks characterize as a as refusal you know a refusal to to simply have have that which is ours um taken and narrated by by others but in terms of the book in that section where i where i say you know the, the next however many pages i forget now the next small short chapter of of writing is not for is is not for everyone to read it is only for indigenous readers i really think of that space as a space of me thinking through the question of how to of what i say what i should say to indigenous folks knowing as well that that isn't a cohesive category of people who all think and you know have the same cultural values um, who all think in the same way and have the same cultural values, right? But it, but it still means that it was put forth for me as a question about what should I what should I say and how should I say it. Thinking about my readership now is entirely different than the quote unquote general audience that a that a book normally has. And also thinking about claiming a space as sovereign space. Can you claim the page, <laughs> you know, as a space of sovereignty? That was another question I was working with. Uh, and I think it's really it's really important to do for all all kinds of reasons. We don't we don't need to say that um, everything is for everyone at all times. 
we can we can have spaces and and particularly in this current era around in decolonization and resurgence indigenous resurgence um, and it's quite an old concept as well thinking about spaces that are firstly for women or for um, folks who identify as LGBTQ2 queer you know uh, these are not this is this practice has been has been taken up by many folks for many different reasons and it's not done firstly i think to exclude sometimes it's done in order to have particular conversations because the other thing i i began to realize a number of years ago is that and i think this is particularly the case for canada that when we are in a room with predominantly non-indigenous folks quite often we'll be Indigenous folks will have a conversation and then someone will say, oh, I don't understand. What is what is the Truth and Reconciliation Commitment? Or wait, 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 what is the, what are residential schools? And every single time we get a question like that, that takes us out of our focus about what we as Indigenous people are there to consider, you know, the work that we are doing. Because then we have to take this conversation to the side, right, to answer this other question about a lack, around a lack of knowledge. So... So again, having a space to prioritize our values or the kinds of conversations that we need to have as Indigenous folks right now is incredibly important. And sometimes refusal is part of that. Thank you so much. It's, um, it's, it feels like a very important part of the book. Uh, not least because you're experimenting, you're, you're really addressing through doing, I think, as I said in the beginning, you know how knowledge is communicated and how how as a scholar how scholarship is done um i mean it's a, it's a deeply scholarly work it's really really a fantastic piece of work but it's also that there's many moments in the book where you kind of address the problematics of how how you're writing the book you know within a western uh you know educational framework how you who you're communicating to and how and i think that's just it, it's i guess you know I don't mean to be sensationalist about that part of the book, but it does feel like it is a very kind of profound moment. Uh, we're not often asked to kind of uh, consider ourselves as the reader and then move on in the book um, yeah. if, if we're not there. So thank you for, for kind of unpacking that for me. Maybe refusal is is the wrong word, but thanks for the context. No, I mean, I, th- I think it's a, one, of, one, of, one of many words. And we're also having this conversation as well as Indigenous folks right now. Why, what are we refusing and why? And is, are we making those choices in, war, in, in ways that serve us? Or, you know, and or when are we doing this just for the sake of refusal? Right? Because I, I don't know that that's necessarily the best way forward sometimes to just say you're not wanted here because... You know, you're not, we, I don't want you, <laughs> you know, and just they're, they're, they're bigger. The stakes are bigger, I think, than, than just refusing for the sake of refusal. So those are, those things are important to consider. Thank you. Uh, I should say that the book is also, uh, as I say, it's littered with scores. That's the wrong word. It's, uh, the, the text <laughs> is intersected by scores, um, both by yourself and Raven Chacon, um, and the address, you know, it, uh, one of yours, I think, begins. I'm sitting in a room, but it's a very different. I'm sitting in the room than some people may <laughs> yes. may may, um, may imagine. Um, so it's 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 a book that both combines the scholarship with the kind of scores for performance, for thinking, for for action, and really a, a whole a whole world of of different possibilities of how we can listen. 
and I think really for me, I just take away from it this: of, it's very humbling to start thinking about uh, myself as that hungry listener and how I can kind of work actively to to address those those issues. So thank you very much for taking time to talk to thank me about you. it. Um, I will continue to read it and and move forward. I hope. Have a lovely afternoon. Thank you.